Hello and welcome to the Dorkamotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we're going to tell the story of the 1949 Holland Tunnel Fire in New York and New Jersey. It was a miraculous disaster. A fire that raged at 4,000 degrees in one of the busiest tunnels in the world, underwater, and yet there were no fatalities. This is the story of the 1949 Holland Tunnel Fire. The Holland Tunnel, Manhattan's leading underwater traffic artery to New Jersey, is the scene of a series of fires and explosions which ties up the crowded thoroughfare for 56 hours. A mammoth 16-ton trailer truck, heavily loaded with chemicals, exploded midway in the Hudson River tube and set off a chain of blasts and fires which choked the roadway with debris and shattered interior construction. Rescue workers labor heroically in the deadly gas-filled chamber where fires raged through other trucks and their cargoes. This gateway to the west and south, through which millions of vehicles pour each year, is battered seriously for 300 feet. Miraculously, no one was killed. Many motorists fled through darkness along catwalks to safety. Following the first explosion, a second blast created further panic, and the stricken area was again the center of feverish activity. Medical help from both New Jersey and New York is rushed to the scene, and every available respirator is put to work to save those overcome by the fumes. Fast first aid is credited with preventing fatality. Another huge truck hauling meat is pulled from the tunnel, charred beyond recognition by the searing heat, which reached 4,000 degrees during the height of the fire. The Holland Tunnel, operating for 26 years and carrying upwards of 3,600 cars an hour, suffers a disaster that is under a stern safety investigation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast and this episode that will be about the 1949 Holland Tunnel tunnel Fire. You just heard that newsreel footage, and I wanted to play that first because it gives a little synopsis of what we're going to get into today on this episode, and it gives an overview, the kind of 10,000-foot look at what happened during this amazing incident in 1949. And I say amazing because it really wasn't tragic other than the physical damage we're going to talk about. There was a loss of life, but it occurred months after the physical fire itself. Nobody actually died in this incident in the days and the hours that it happened in New York City in the Holland Tunnel. I will warn you, if you are a person that has a fear of driving through tunnels, this may be one you want to skip because the scenario we're going to talk about here and the story I'm going to tell is quite literally the nightmare scenario for anybody that has a fear of passing through tunnels. I give you that warning right off the bat so you can clear it out of your mind. And if you are afraid of tunnels, just stick around. There'll be a new episode coming soon. So in order to accurately tell this story, we need to set the scene. And the scene is the Holland Tunnel. If you've never driven through the Holland Tunnel, uh, passing from New York City to New Jersey, I can tell you that uh, in the kind of modern sense, it's pretty claustrophobic in there in terms of what we expect when we drive through a modern tunnel in our cars today. Tunnels that are built in modern cities, such as the Big Dig in Boston and others, tend to be four or five lanes wide. They have a kind of a more expansive feel to them. Well, when they built this tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, uh, it was as big as it could be, and it was still very narrow, and it still is today. Obviously, our cars and SUVs are pretty big, and they take up a lot of room on the road, as did the trucks that were passing through the Holland Tunnel on the date in 1949 when this fire occurred. The Holland Tunnel was first proposed in the teens in New York City, and it met a lot of resistance. It met resistance in funding. They went to the federal government looking for money, and the federal government turned them down a couple of times. But 
By the late teens, they got the funding approved, and the project began in 1920. The reason the Holland Tunnel was so necessary in 1920 was the fact that the only way to get from New Jersey into New York City at that point effectively was on a ferry. And every day there were something like 20,000 cars being ferried from New Jersey to New York City and back. And the ferry rides obviously have their downsides, the rough seas and all the other stuff that can happen. It's just not a very convenient way to get in and out of the city every day. So this tunnel was seen as a way to increase uh, economic production in the city. It was going to get people in and out easier. It was going to provide a much more pleasant experience and a more efficient experience than it would to ride a ferry. And they'd also be able to collect tolls, so the tunnel would effectively pay for itself over time. It was a seven-year project, started in 1920, ended in 1927, had a total cost at that time of $47 million, which uh, I did not do the modern equivalent, but that is hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not in the billions of dollars in 2020 money. A hundred years ago, $47 million was a massive, massive expenditure. The lead engineer in the project was a guy named Clifford Holland. And the tunnel was not initially named after him. It had a different name. But Holland actually died in 1924, and uh, they named the tunnel after him because he died before it was finished. He was only 41 years old. And the real tragic thing about, about Clifford Holland is he oversaw this project, and he did a brilliant job in the design and execution of this project when he was alive. Things were working as good as they could have worked. The processes were correct. The math was right. Everything was going pretty well. And then he took very ill in the 1924 time frame and he died now the real crummy part of this as i mentioned for holland outside of the, you know dying part is the fact that he died four days before the tunnel was what they call hold through meaning it was four days before one side met the other in the middle and broke down the wall in the center and got a look at the other side four days before the tunnel was actually a complete end-to-end -end tunnel under the water it is the only way that people were going to be able to drive their cars from New Jersey to New York. You knew it was going to be busy. They had planned for about 20,000 cars a day to be using this tunnel. And as we'll talk about um, different aspects of the tunnel, that 20,000 car a day mark has been just obliterated over time, of course. And over a billion cars to this point in history have passed through the Holland Tunnel. Pretty amazing deal. It is the first mechanically ventilated tunnel ever built. And that is something that will come into a big, big play when we talk about the fire of 1949. The mechanical ventilation was the product of many years of research and development by professors at various colleges and different theoretical engineers that worked on these ideas. And all of the current ideas of the time were employed in this tunnel. And the reality is the basic principles used in designing the ventilation of the Holland Tunnel are still using the ventilation of tunnels today. We we see large tunnels. I, I reference Boston again. That's where I live. I pass through the, the Big Dig project often, as we all do in this area. And you will see the ventilation stacks around the city, those ventilation towers. And the Holland Tunnel was the first tunnel to have those ventilation towers and the mechanical ventilation that allowed, in many ways, the disaster we're going to talk about to be very much mitigated. On 4.55, or at 4.55 p.m., November 12, 1927, the president of the United States at that time, Calvin Coolidge, from the presidential yacht, the SS Mayflower, turned a, a ceremonial key. It was the same ceremonial key that was used to be turned and to signify the opening of the Panama Canal. So not only do you have that kind of neat tied in history, you have this key that's been used at these big events to signify the opening of the tunnel. When he 
turned that key, the tunnel kind of immediately came to life, the toll booths came to life, all that kind of stuff. The very first day that it was open, it was open to foot traffic, and 20,000 people walked through the Holland Tunnel just to say they did it. Uh, much like when most municipalities or cities open a bridge these days or a tunnel, they do allow that initial day of walking, and that's a tradition that's been going on for about 100 years. 56 or rather 51,600 cars passed through the Holland Tunnel during the first official traffic day that it had, and they were mostly sightseers. These were people that just wanted to say they did it. This was a very unique experience, guys. 8,000 feet long, okay? 8,462 feet long was the Holland Tunnel, and there was basically nowhere else on Earth that you were going to get into a tunnel in your car and drive through that situation. So for people... This was a tourist destination. Let's go drive through the Holland Tunnel. It cost you 50 cents. Today, the toll is $16. That $47 million that they spent to build the tunnel back in 1927 has been repaid probably 100 times over. But if you have, uh, if you have ever, never driven through the Holland Tunnel, it is a unique experience in the sense that it's a very small claustrophobic tunnel. It's also a unique experience because it's going to cost you $16 for the privilege of passing from either New York City to New Jersey or from New Jersey into New York City. Now that we know about the tunnel itself, we know about its 8,400-foot length, we need to talk about what happened on May 13th, yes, Friday, May 13th, 1949, and how those events, some by coincidence and some by design, helped to prevent any fatalities from what would seem to be a very deadly situation. It was a morning, I would assume, just like many others in the world of New York City and New Jersey in 1949. May 13th was the date at 8.30 a.m. A big truck, like so many other big trucks, rumbled into the Holland Tunnel. This particular big truck was carrying a full load of carbon disulfide, 84,000 pounds of this liquid, stored in 55-gallon drums. And carbon disulfide is uh, kind of nasty stuff. It's used in a couple different industries. It can be used in the industry of making rubber. It can be used in uh, explosives. It can be used to make rayon, which is likely what it was being transported to a, a factory to make rayon in this case. It can also be used as a fumigant. Um, so as you understand, a fumigant is going to kill basically everything it comes in contact with. If it's used in making explosives, well, we know what that means. And, of course, in stuff like industrial processes, this chemical was handled very, very carefully. The scariest thing in terms of carbon disulfide in, in, in this particular scenario is the fact that it only requires about 190 degrees of heat to ignite. So when we think about various parts of an automobile, we know that those things get way, way hotter than 190 degrees, specifically the exhaust so as the driver of this truck, whose name I've not yet been able to find, is driving his truck in, driving for a company called Apex Inc., he's driving through the tunnel, minding his own business. What he doesn't know is that one of the barrels on his truck is loose. And this tunnel, like all tunnels, likely a little bumpy. The truck, if you've ever been in an old truck or seen old big rigs from the 1940s, they are sprung like iron. I mean, it is like they have no suspension at all. Very rough riding machines. He hits a bump hits a corner, hits something, and one of the barrels falls off the truck. This 55-gallon drum hits the deck and breaks open, and almost immediately thereafter, a car drives over top of it, and we're off to the races. The entire barrel and the contents of it ignite. Likely, it is igniting off of the exhaust of vapor and igniting off of the exhaust of a car. 
as this happens, there's an immediate explosion. The truck explodes, cars are on fire, and things go from zero to one million percent bad instantaneously. Inside the tunnel, as this is happening, other trucks are now being involved. As the carbon disulfide truck blew up, it basically forced itself onto the other lane. It's only a two-lane tunnel. It has now blocked the tunnel. Other trucks are hitting things. Other trucks are coming into contact. And the whole traffic pattern has now ground to a halt with the head of the traffic pattern completely engulfed in flames. The Holland Tunnel had a lot of uh, escape portals, escape doors, and it had catwalks along either side. The truck drivers, the car driver of the car that was on fire, everybody made a break for it. So people are running out of the tunnel. Um, moments after the explosion happens and after the fire happens, the Port Authority has patrolmen that are around the tunnel and they immediately spring into action. And these are some of the bravest people in this whole story because when nobody knew what was going on whatsoever, these Port Authority patrolmen basically ran headlong into the tunnel and started getting people out of their cars, started getting people out of the escape routes, and really started to manage this situation, which was rapidly turning into a nightmare of epic proportions. It's horrifying to think about a tractor-trailer truck on fire inside a tunnel. Now we talk about multiple tractor-trailer trucks on fire inside a tunnel. We talk about the trapped heat in there. It's a, it's a concrete, basically a, a kiln. You know, it's all that heat being generated in that area. Amazingly, people are running for their lives. People are getting out of the tunnel. The Port Authority guys, as well as other people, start to back the cars that are behind this or that were coming toward the fire out because they know there's no way the firemen are going to be able to fight this thing if they, it's all log jammed with traffic. So all these cars are now being backed out of the tunnel by the Port Authority patrolmen and other people. At 9.05 a.m., the New Jersey Fire Department is notified of, a, of an incident. At 9.12 a.m., the New York Fire Department is notified of the incident. There was a localized tunnel-based firefighting crew that immediately started to fight this fire. They had their own trained staff, if you will, as part of the, the Port Authority, as part of the, as part of the organization of the tunnel. Within five minutes of this incident happening, there were a crew of guys in there, a handful of them, with an inch and a half diameter hose throwing water at something. They know something is on fire because it is just a black cloud of acrid, awful smoke. And these guys ran into it. I, I can't even imagine the level of bravery it takes for that because you're running into a tunnel. I mean, to go into a burning building is beyond my comprehension of, of guts. To go into a burning tunnel that above you is the ocean it has to be doubly as horrifying. What if this thing gets so hot it collapses? What if the outside of the tunnel is compromised? What if a small leak kick turns into a big leak and you drown fighting a fire? Imagine that on your tombstone. You drowned fighting a fire. What? That was a possibility. So the small brigade of Port Authority firemen and, and workers are throwing water at what they have no clue as to what's actually burning yet. It's not like there's cameras or closed-circuit video inside this tunnel. They just know something's on fire. If they knew what was burning, I suspect that they would have been less apt to run straight in there because the potential effects of this, as we'll talk about in a while, could have been way, way worse. Within a half hour to 45 minutes, 29 fire trucks 
have arrived on the scene from New York and New Jersey. They're fighting the fire basically from both ends. The New Jersey side guys are coming in from Jersey. The New York guys are working their way in from New York. The New Jersey guys have it a little bit easier because this occurred in the southbound side of the tunnel. So all the traffic forward of the fire has been able to drive out of the tunnel. They, of course, have basically run away from it, and the fire trucks are rolling and the firemen are rolling in, kind of driving technically the wrong way into the tunnel. It is the New York side that has a tougher go of it because they're weaving through traffic and trying to get themselves as close as they can into the fire. So 29 trucks, they estimate about 63 to 65 total emergency vehicles on the scene between ambulances, police cars, supervisor vehicles, Port Authority vehicles. But to me, the 29 fire truck number is amazing. I've never seen 29 fire trucks at one place, let alone responding to one incident. As the main truck is burning the truck with the carbon disulfide in it. I talked to you about how other trucks had gotten entangled in this thing. There's a total of four trucks kind of in a big crashed up lump. If you can believe it, one of the other trucks is filled with turpentine and oil-based paint. Guess what happens to that one? Kaboom. It's on fire too. So now we have two tractor-trailer trucks filled with highly combustible, acrid, awful, toxic stuff, burning, belching smoke, and continuing to make a very risky situation for the fire department. The New Jersey side guys were basically able to get within 350 feet of the first burning truck, of the carbon disulfide truck. So they're they're very close. Uh, they were able to pull in that far, and then they advanced close enough to get a line on the fire and, and throw water at it. The New Jersey side uh, was able to really uh, put it hurting in a good way, on their fire because of the fact that they didn't have a lot of obstruction to deal with. They got in there very quickly and, and were able to start throwing water hard and fast. Now, I mentioned before that this was the first mechanically ventilated tunnel in the world, and the reason why that is a big deal in terms of this story is because it really helped to save the lives of many firemen. I did mention there was one fatality, and I said, you know, I say there is no deaths in the, in the title and, and really during the description of this, because during the incident, there wasn't. However, one man did pass away in August after being involved in this incident. Battalion Chief Gunter Beek had very bad smoke inhalation on the day of the fire, and unfortunately, in August of 1949, he passed away. So, yes, Gunter Beek did pass away. Not on the day of the fire, though. He passed away months later after dealing with its effects. I mention that because the ventilation of this, of this tunnel worked as follows. Fresh air was pumped in from the bottom along the curbing. Obviously, the ventilation fans were then drawing the air out and shot up through those ventilation stacks, the ventilation towers that I told you about. So it's basically like if you had a exhaust fan in the attic of your house, which a lot of houses have. They have an exhaust fan in the attic. You crack the windows open on the first floor, you run the exhaust fan, and it draws that cool, fresh air through your home. It is a massive scale version of that inside the Holland Tunnel. And it worked really, really well. And it worked really well in this incident and in this emergency because of the coordination and the planning of the Port Authority and the, and the guys and girls that were operating the tunnel. So as the fire gets bad, as the firemen start to respond, they put the ventilation system on full in and full out, meaning it is moving as hard and as fast to get fresh air in the tunnel. It is moving as hard and as fast to get fresh air out of the, to get the stale air out of the tunnel. You may think to yourself, that sounds like a really bad idea during a fire. 
And in every other case but a tunnel fire, it is a really bad idea because you don't want to feed the fire fresh air. You want it to choke itself out. You want it to do everything you can to rob oxygen from a fire to put it out. Only logical sense. We all know that. It goes back to stop, drop, and roll. I mean, this is the most basic principle in the world. But in a tunnel fire, when you have people in there fighting it, you need to allow those people the ability to breathe and see and operate. So not only was the fresh air coming in helping the firefighters to not be wholly overcome and die on the spot of smoke inhalation, it was helping to clear the smoke out at the top of the tunnel so they could actually get a look at what they were fighting. And we can talk about the fact that two of the Unfortunately, two of the ventilation towers suffered failures, the fans. And these fans were monsters. These were like 40 feet across or 50 feet across, these fans. So the reason the two of the fans failed was the fact that the air they were drawing out was hitting them at over 1,000 degrees. The concentrated nature of this fire, all estimates, and I'm not making this number up, it comes from all the studies that were done by different engineering firms and governmental firms and people that testified and all this stuff, they all came to the number that inside that the fire was burning at its peak at 4,000 degrees. So the air going up these ventilation shafts as the, the fans are drawing the smoke and the air and the cinders up, and by the time it gets to the fans, it is cooled significantly, but it is still 1,000 degrees. And those fans were not designed to handle 1,000 degree air. The fans that were further away from the fire, of course, dealt with much cooler air. They did not suffer any failures because they didn't melt. The concentrated damage of this fire covered about two football fields inside the tunnel, if you can believe it. That first group of four trucks, and then about 350 feet away, there was another group of trucks. The fire got so intense, that second group of trucks ignited on fire as well. That kind of gives us the full length of the fire, about 600 feet. And that's where all the heat was concentrated. So as long as the ventilation shafts were away from that 600-foot area, which many of them were, they didn't draw hot enough air to melt their fans. So this incident, as I mentioned, happens at 8.30 a.m. By 9.12 a.m., we have response from the New Jersey and New York Fire Departments. We had immediate firefighting assistance being provided by the folks inside the Holland Tunnel, the tunnel patrolmen responding to get people out. By 1 p.m., the fire was, quote-unquote, surrounded, meaning, to my estimation, that fire crews on both sides had worked their way in close enough that they were directly throwing water on top of it. At 2.15 p.m., on the same day, the other side of the tunnel was reopened. They were still fighting the fire on one side, but they went, hey, we can't, we can't stop everything forever here. They opened up the other side of the tunnel at 2.15, and traffic began passing through unimpeded. I mean, that's awesome and scary and crazy and weird to me. But you're basically, what, five hours after the incident, you have traffic cleanly passing through the other side. By 4.45 p.m., the damaged cars and trucks are being dragged out of the tunnel. So the fire's out, 4.45 p.m., we're basically talking a 9-to-5 job here. About eight hours later, they're pulling wrecks, melted wrecks, out of the tunnel. This was no easy task either because when I say melted wrecks, you can find photos of the aftermath of the Holland Tunnel fire, and you will see big rig trucks that are melted to the point where the chassis look like spaghetti. It's unreal. So about eight, eight hours after the incident, the fire's out, 
Heat's been dissipated. Trucks are being dragged out. 66 people were injured in the fire, almost all of them from smoke. 27 of those people were hospitalized, none of them in critical condition. This does not account, of course, for Mr. Beaker, who would pass away. I can't speak to his condition on that day because I don't know it. I know that he passed away in August and they attributed his death to the smoke inhalation. There were 23 total trucks destroyed or damaged, burned up in the fire, numerous cars, 650 tons of rubble on the floor of the tunnel, both 600 feet of damage to the ceilings and walls. And the road? Well, the road was actually fine. It was a granite-style tunnel flooring in this thing, and it stood up to the heat, and it stood up to the rubble without any sort of problem. Now, where is the rubble coming from, you're asking? How is there rubble? It's a fire. The ceiling of the tunnel was made of cast concrete, and the cast concrete is, uh, you know, has metal grating inside it, and it was hung down, and that was what the ceiling was made of. So during this area of the highest heat, and in this area of the highest heat, the ceilings collapsed, and they collapsed because it got so hot that the support metal that was holding it up melted. Um, the the concrete was spalling, which is if you if you've ever seen a building. Uh, maybe an old World War II footage, or maybe you've seen a, a concrete building that's had a fire. Spalling is where the concrete kind of comes apart in big chunks because of really high heat. And in this situation, of course, the heat was at 4,000 degrees, so there's spalling on the concrete uh, for that 600-foot length and a little bit on the outside of, of the 600 feet, but it was primarily concentrated in that area. The ceiling falling down was a major problem uh, in terms of cleanup, right? 650 tons of busted up concrete is uh, not going to be very easy to move. The other thing that happened was that this tunnel was used as a major trunk for AT&T to run thousands and thousands of telephone lines through, including a newly developed technology called coaxial cable that ran from the television studios to the central AT&T offices and other technological buildings in New Jersey for apparently processing and distribution. All that stuff was melted. The telephone cables were impressive in their volume. The boat is big around as a baseball bat, as I have read and described and seen. And there was 900 paired wires per cable. So if you can imagine a little two, you know, a, a, a wire that's joined in the middle, a little positive negative side, and then group 900 of them in a big giant clump, that was the stuff that melted through. That was the stuff that turned to liquid. The coaxial cables did the same thing, just absolutely 100% liquefied. So the cleanup has to begin. We we know the other side of the tunnel is working, so there's a one-way into the city right now, and the only way to go back is to put your car on a ferry. How long would this last in today's world? It would last a long time. The cleanup and reopening of the Holland Tunnel, if this happens in 2020, weeks or months the cleanup and reopening of the Holland Tunnel in 1949, 56 hours. So as this wreckage is being pulled out of the tunnel, the phone's already ringing, the trucks are already showing up, the bulldozers are already arriving on trailers, and the second the last truck is pulled out of the tunnel, the crews go to work. And within 56 hours, they had cleaned up 650 tons of rubble, They had removed other suspicious-looking damaged parts of the ceiling. 
and they opened the traffic floodgates for people to leave through the Holland Tunnel. It was estimated that the fire did a million dollars in damage in 1949 money. Again, a huge expenditure today. And what about the ceiling? What about the roof of the tunnel? How'd they fix that? Every day at 8 p.m., the southbound lane was closed and enrolled hundreds of feet of scaffolding, enrolled a giant crew of workers. They would work from 8, well, basically 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. when they got the scaffolding in there till 4.30 in the morning. They would get out the scaffolding at 4.30 in the morning, drag it out, and by 6 a.m., the tunnel was open again. So every day, seven days a week, tunnel closes at 8, guys work till 4.30 a.m., tunnel reopens at 6 a.m. The entire tunnel was repaired by mid-August of 1949 to the point where you'd never know anything even happened in there. And again, we look at what would happen in 2020 and the way we operate today, well, I think it would take a whole lot longer than just a couple of months to get all the damage repaired, let alone reopening the tunnel on Sunday afternoon after you had this horrific fire, the worst in American history in terms of a tunnel fire, just two days before. And oh, by the way, the other side of the tunnel was interrupted by a max for a maximum of what, four hours, five hours? It's incredible. And it's awesome. And it speaks to the spirit of 1949 America. What about the driver? And what about the phone lines? Let's talk about that for a second. So even the phone company, I think, was even potentially more badass in 1949 than they are now. I talked to you about how just melted and cooked and gross everything was in there, how this was a vastly complicated job. AT&T sent their 25 best guys in, and they were waiting at the mouth of the tunnel for the first second of approval for them to go inside. And the problem for the phone company and really for the overall impact of this was that many of those lines that melted or the big trunk lines that melted, these were long-distance calling lines. And um, it was the largest to that point in history, the largest phone long-distance outage in American history. It may still be because these were the trunk lines for AT&T in the, in the nation. You know, the, the central office of AT&T was in New York City. Their technological hub was in New Jersey. So this was where basically everything was routed through. So when you lost that trunk line through the Lincoln, or rather through the Holland Tunnel, uh, you lost pretty much everything. So they send this crew in, they're waiting, and they attack. By nightfall, 50% of the phone lines are operational again. By nightfall. And when I say nightfall, we have to remember that these guys probably didn't start working until 5 p.m., 4.30. And I'm going to say nightfalls 9 or 10. So within six hours, these 25 elite SWAT team level phone guys have half of the nation's long-distance calling ability back up, and within a couple of days, it was like nothing had ever happened in there as far as the tunnel. As far as other rigs that were involved in the fire, I talked about the, the carbon disulfide truck that started it. I talked about the turpentine truck that was in there. Well, there was also a truck full of meat, which is uh, kind of gross when you think about that truck of meat. I mean, hey, listen, I love meat much as the next guy. I'll eat steak every single day if I could. But the meat truck incinerating is kind of tough. And there was a truck full of bleach as well. So that, uh, you know, just a real nasty grouping of things in there that were all burning at the same time. And you heard the guy in the newsreel talk about the meat truck being dragged out of the tunnel 
for its uh, own safety, if you will. What about the driver that started this whole thing? What about the guy, the singular human individual that started this incident? What happened to him? Nothing. And uh, in, in a way, I feel like that's maybe appropriate. I mean, I understand there was a lot of physical damage. If people had passed away in this thing, I'm sure there would have been criminal charges pressed. But the law of 1949 did not allow for that. The law for 1949 in New York City or in New Jersey where this happened did not allow the driver to be charged. The only criminal offense he could be charged with was a misdemeanor, a maximum $50 fine, and a maximum of five days in jail. The driver was cleared. He didn't get any of it. So even if they had thrown the book at him, he would have had a misdemeanor, had to pay 50 bucks, and been out of jail within a week. One thing that did change drastically was the mandating and the uh, regulation change into what was allowed to pass through the tunnel and what wasn't. So the Port Authority and the ICC started to do some spot checks at the tunnel almost immediately after this happened, and they were finding numerous violations, apparently up to 100 violations a day for the way things were being packaged, handled, and secured on trucks. So no longer was hazardous cargo allowed to be taken into the tunnel. It's uh, one of the things, it's it's a watershed incident in that respect where you went from having basically um, no kind of regulation in terms of what could enter a tunnel into some very heavy regulations about what could or couldn't. And those continue to evolve today. You can see signs in various cities about what's allowed and what isn't to pass through tunnels. The trucking company that owned the truck, they got the worst of this, apparently. Apex Inc., as I mentioned, was the trucking company that operated the rig or owned the rig that this driver was in. And in 1950, they were banned from using the Holland Tunnel. So they, I don't know how many other trucking companies have been banned from using uh, a tunnel or a specific roadway, but I will tell you that this one, Apex Inc., was banned from passing through the Holland Tunnel in 1950 pretty amazing stuff that's the story of the 1949 holland tunnel fire in some respects all's well that ends well to me the major lessons in this one are the no fatalities from the fire which seems just incomprehensible the fact that we saw this amazing response from people of such bravery to go running into the tunnel to be trained to do so. Listen, there would never been anything like this happen in America, and the people involved responded instantaneously and so professionally that they saved everyone's lives. Had this been not thought of, had this been not planned for, had this been not perhaps anticipated happening at some point, there would have been no plan, there would have been mass confusion, and there would have been a lot of people trapped and dying in that tunnel. Instead, people's lives were saved, and the only thing we get to talk about is a bunch of burned-up concrete and melted trucks. We also get to talk about the sheer gumption of America in 1949 that when you have a tunnel fire of 4,000 degrees that may have or may not have an effect on the integrity of the tunnel that you're in, it's okay to open the other side at five hours after the fact. I'm not faulting them for doing that. In fact, you know, they did the math. They understood what the strength capability of the the sheath of the tunnel. Remember, we're just talking about the inside concrete roof and the floor, basically, and the walls. The actual tunnel itself is made out of a big steel tube. They knew that it never got hot enough to affect that big steel tube, so they opened things back up again quickly. And then the thrash to get the tunnel back open. It was not a fight of politics. It was not a fight of which organization would do it. It was not a fight of what company would get the contract. It was a concerted effort made by all hands working in the same direction in 56 hours 
after this incredible incident, after this absolute monster of a fire, after 650 tons of rubble fell from the roof of the tunnel to the floor, cars were passing through the Holland Tunnel as if nothing had ever happened ahead of it. Amazing stuff, a great story, and that, my friends, is the story of the 1949 Holland Tunnel fire. It is, of course, the miraculous disaster. I'm Brian Loans, and that's it for this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. Please check us out on dorkomotive.com. Learn all you need to know about the podcast there, and you can follow me on Instagram at at Brian Loans. That's at B-R-I-A-N-L-O-H-N-E-S. Once again, thank you for listening. <laughs>